Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the movie The Patriot, made in the year 2000. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. As I mentioned in the previous episode of The Baton, John Williams had planned on a break from film music in 2000, using the time to prepare for the two very busy years that were to follow, even if he wasn't fully aware of how busy it would become. His most immediate project on the timeline was the futuristic science fiction movie that Spielberg was preparing to film. That movie wouldn't need Williams' services until at least early 2001. And I don't think the movie about that famous boy wizard was on Williams' radar just yet. So, what to do to fill the time in 2000? Williams got ready to conduct a summer full of concerts in Boston that summer, some of which brought the public performance debut of his music from Angela's Ashes. Another one would feature a new concerto that I will talk about later in this episode. These concerts came after a hectic spring that had him writing a score for a film that was marketed as a big summer blockbuster and a potential Academy Award nominee for Best Picture. Director Roland Emmerich and producer Dean Devlin had made three movies together in the 1990s, all of which fit into the sci-fi genre and made lots of money, even if the critics weren't thrilled about them. Their biggest success came with Independence Day, which ended 1996 as the box office champ and meant Emmerich and Devlin could make any movie they wanted. They chose Godzilla as their next project, and it made money, but was so bad that only a few could claim it was so bad it's good. Perhaps the reviews from Godzilla, and the resistance by studios to give the duo another sci-fi film that could sink the studio, led Emmerich and Devlin to consider another genre. This was 1999, two years after Titanic blew everyone away with its success while telling a fictional story wrapped around a true life event. Enter Robert Rodat, the writer of Saving Private Ryan. He had earned an Academy Award nomination for writing the story of a fictional group of soldiers on a quest during the events of World War II. And he had another such wartime tale in his arsenal. This one would be set in the Revolutionary War about a farmer who takes up arms to fight for freedom against the British. Emmerich and Devlin seized upon the script and decided that this would be their next movie. Coming along for the ride with Rodat would be Mark Gordon and Gary Levinson, who were two of the producers on Saving Private Ryan. Filming in South Carolina, where many of the events of the film take place, featured a sense of deja vu for the man who was to take on the lead role. Mel Gibson had been doing well since winning two Oscars for directing and producing 1995's Braveheart, starring in four movies and voicing characters in two animated films. One has to wonder what convinced Mel Gibson to star in The Patriot, since he would play a man very similar to William Wallace in Braveheart. His Benjamin Martin in The Patriot was a man looking to live a peaceful life while everyone else around him wanted to fight. A doubt in the family forces him to fight back, and he is swept up in becoming a major player in the war. Sound familiar? Rodat wrote the part of Benjamin Martin for Gibson, most likely because he was so convincing in the same role in Braveheart. 
Now, similarities to Braveheart aside, the filmmakers were smart to not portray the British as cartoonish buffoons. Casting Tom Wilkinson as Lord Cornwallis was a good choice, but the better one was finding Jason Isaacs as the lead villain, Colonel Tavington. Isaacs was on the verge of becoming a big movie star when the Patriots' role was offered, and this was an opportunity he seized quickly. In every scene he's in, he steals it from whomever is acting in it. Isaacs has said that the anti-Semitism he felt growing up in England, quote, prepared me to play the unattractive villains I would play in movies and on the stage, end quote. One critic compared his work in The Patriot to that of Ray Fiennes in Schindler's List, and that sparked talk of an Oscar nomination, talk that took hold of even me all the way through the announcement of the Oscar nominees seven months after the film was released. Though the press talked often of the weird choice to put Mel Gibson back into the wartime revenge genre, the bigger story of making The Patriot, especially for film score fans, comes in the selection of the composer. To no one's surprise, David Arnold was the first choice to write the score. He wrote the music for all three of the previous Emmerich Devlin films and won a Grammy for his Independence Day score, music which sounds very much like Arnold was drawing heavily from the John Williams sci-fi playbook. Once Arnold composed music for the entire film, he played some demos for the filmmakers. Emmerich and Devlin didn't like what they heard and seemingly gave Arnold a chance to submit a rewrite. While Arnold was going through a second draft, Executives at Sony Pictures were secretly lobbying for a bigger name to write the score. Yes, David Arnold had some clout as a Grammy winner, but Sony was really trying to push the film as an Oscar contender and apparently wanted an Oscar-winning composer to write the music. It didn't hurt John Williams' chances that Gordon and Levinson had worked with Williams before, and when the final choice was made, Williams was the one who was contacted. And all this seemingly happened without Arnold's knowledge. In a 2001 interview, David Arnold said Emmerich and Devlin were always dead set on keeping Arnold as a composer, even if the early drafts of music that he wrote didn't sound great. The pressure from Gordon and Levinson was so strong that Dean Devlin had to be the one to tell Arnold that he was getting replaced. On the surface, Arnold didn't seem to be too upset about it. Quote, I think the studio was very keen on getting someone else with an obviously huge marquee value as John, who tends not to put his name to things that aren't first rate, and as far as I'm concerned, very rarely fails to deliver something quite astonishing. I was a little disappointed perhaps in the way that was handled, but to be passed up for him certainly isn't an insult. So, Williams came in to give the movie the marquee value that Arnold mentioned, and he did deliver a score that is first-rate. The Patriot is definitely a different kind of war film than Saving Private Ryan, especially in the way the battle scenes are filmed, so it would require something much different musically. Cinematographer Caleb Deschanel, who would receive an Oscar nomination for his work, went for overtly cinematic color palettes in the film, including icy blues for night scenes, and shooting some of the big battles in that magic hour of the day when the sun makes everything glow. No quest for extreme realism in some of the battles between the colonists and the British. So this meant Williams didn't have to hold back on the music for many of the battle scenes, giving us some of his most ambitious writing for brass instruments outside of the Star Wars films. I can't wait to highlight those a little bit later.
The Patriot score is one of Williams' most thematically rich scores of the past decade, as each scene employs one or more themes or has a strong melody weaving through it. If Williams was given direction by Emmerich to harken back to his late motif strong era of the 1980s, Williams delivered while also keeping his ideas firmly planted in the new style he had been fostering since the late 1990s. Three themes dominate the score, and Williams introduces all three of them in the film version of the opening credits. This is, as far as I can tell, the first time Williams has introduced all of his major themes in the first three minutes of a score. The first theme is a haunting call on a trumpet that seems like it's way off in the distance. It comes as we see some items put in a trunk, while Benjamin Martin offers some narration. Because this trumpet is not on the soundtrack CD, I'll play that part from the actual film with Mel Gibson's narration. feared that my sins would return to visit me and the cost is more than I can bear the next scene shows us children on a farm as a postal worker arrives with the mail on a horse the next theme, which will be the film's main theme and later morphed into the love theme, rises on a wide shot of the farm. And then the final theme as one of the children runs to the house to retrieve the mail.
That theme will be prominent in the final half of the film as it will portray the resilience of the colonial army made mostly of untrained soldiers. So this is one of the best opening title music cues John Williams has ever written, maybe in the top 10. I would imagine all Williams had to do to convince Emmerich and the producers about his worth was play this three minutes of music. So the stage is set for this film, and we understand Benjamin's reluctance to fight and his past as a former soldier in the French and Indian War during a trip to Charlestown, South Carolina. Williams gives us a nice jaunty melody to accompany the Martin family as they arrive in the big city. The movie's events are really set into motion at the 30-minute mark, when Jason Isaacs as Colonel Tavington arrives at the Martin Farm, where British soldiers and colonial soldiers are being treated. Tavington discovers that Gabriel Martin, the oldest child played very well by Heath Ledger, is a colonial dispatch carrier and orders him to be hanged. The second oldest child, Thomas, fights back and Tavington shoots him in the back where other composers, maybe even David Arnold, might have used the full orchestra to highlight the mayhem surrounding Thomas's shooting, Williams holds back. It's shocking enough to see a child killed in a movie, and music doesn't need to overdo it. Striking the deep chimes as Thomas draws his final breaths is a strong added detail in the orchestration. And now the British set fire to the house and the farm.
Benjamin's mad now. He runs into the house, grabs his guns and the hatchet he had put away at the beginning of the movie. Things start with a slower rendition of that trumpet theme, which I'll call the Benjamin's Past theme. And here's where William starts giving us the brass instruments with some terrifyingly difficult runs to complete. These brass runs are short now, but a thrill to hear. Benjamin takes his remaining two sons into the woods to rescue Gabriel. The gunfire battle that follows goes without music, but Williams uses urgent strings as Benjamin whips out his hatchet to fight close up with the British. The frenetically fun brass runs, with trumpets playing different notes, return as Benjamin fights off two more soldiers, and a flute flourish stops the action briefly before Benjamin throws the hatchet into the final British soldier's head. You can hear the strings playing the Benjamin's Pass theme here before it goes back to the trumpet.
The visuals accompanying that moment are quite gruesome. And once we see Benjamin all bloody, just like William Wallace was at the end of his first fight in Braveheart, that trumpet gives us a clue to Benjamin's equally bloody past. And it should not surprise you that it's Tim Morrison playing the trumpet here, continuing his streak of heart-wrenching performances for William Scores that adds so many layers to it. Gabriel refuses to sit by and let Thomas's death go unpunished. He continues fighting in the war, forcing Benjamin to join him. The two recruit colonial citizens to fight, and one of their helpers is a girl named Anne, who Gabriel has liked since they were younger. Anne gives a rousing speech in church to convince the men to join the fight. And we get the first rendition of the militia theme as the men stand to volunteer. It's very emotionally charged music, and a major key that keeps ascending to a very victorious payoff. Hearing it away from the visuals is very emotional, but it's even more so when you watch these proud men decide to fight for what they believe is right. The main theme transforms into the love theme in this sequence as Gabriel requests permission from Anne's father to send her correspondence. We heard it on the strings in the opening credits, and now the flute and harp make it more tender and innocent. Back to some of the great action music for this movie. Tavington is unaware that Benjamin is the one leading the militia and killing off dozens of British soldiers. But in his attempt to put a stop to it, Tavington creates a trap of his own that turns the tide briefly. The strings are strong here as the militia retreat once they realize they are outnumbered. 
but the militia's brass shows that it is still resilient. The very next scene is ripped from the Jaws script, as Benjamin finally talks about the massacre he participated in during the French and Indian War almost 20 years earlier. The first part of the story goes without music, but Tim Morrison's trumpet comes back with the Benjamin's Past theme as he talks about the violence he enacted on innocent men, women, and children. It's not easy to hear this music in the film because it's mixed so low, but every once in a while, the trumpet makes itself known so you can feel that eeriness. One of the saddest scenes in the film is the church burning scene. 
Anne, her parents, and other townspeople are locked inside after Tavington learns they have been aiding Benjamin and his militia. Once the flames take over the church, the strings play at a very high register, joined just minutes later by the horns. Those horns cry for us as we see the smoke and flames, leaving us to imagine the terror of what is happening inside. We heard these horns cry earlier when we saw Charlotte's plantation being burned by Tavington's men. But when it comes to the parish church fire, I wonder if Williams thought of playing the love theme here in the strings to make us feel even more emotional about Anne's death. Okay, so just one more scene to highlight before we get to the big final battle. Tavington and his men are resting at a creek and notice Gabriel and others riding in for an attack. The scene is filmed in slow motion and musically features a fantastic ostinato that is handed off to various sections of the orchestra throughout this mini battle. The urgency in the music offsets the slow motion action, keeping it tense and urgent as we are unsure who will survive.
Gabriel stabs Tavington's second-in-command, and the music pauses for a bit. But it returns as Tavington takes aim, with the percussion now taking over the ostinato. Gabriel shoots Tavington, who fakes his death, in order to stab Gabriel and kill him. Gabriel's death is just another catalyst for the big showdown between our hero and villain, during the climactic battle that turns the tide. Just before they clash, Benjamin prevents the militia from retreating, grabbing the colonial flag and desperately waving it. Now the militia theme comes back as the soldiers re-engage the British. That string and woodwind ostinato seals the deal. And the brass, well, it's just the cherry on top. So the Colonials are going to win the battle, but we have to kill off Tavington. The fight goes as expected. We think Martin is lost. And the Benjamin's pass trumpet makes us believe that as Tavington knocks Martin's trusty hatchet out of his hand, in slow motion, of course.
But just before Tavington swings to cut off Martin's head, Martin ducks and mortally stabs Tavington. And a quick note about some of that action music during Martin and Tavington's fight. It has that feel of a lot of the action music Williams is writing in this period. Not much on melody, but heavy on dynamics. Fast rhythms and quick bursts from various instruments. This style provides a pulse for the action, keeping it moving and provides a lot of tension. If you are a fan of John Williams' melodies, you won't find much of it in this type of writing. I've seen The Patriot four or five times, including once in the theater in summer 2000. I'm never bored watching it, but I can feel that the importance and weight of the Revolutionary War is pushed aside in favor of this smaller story. That is often the way stories and war movies are told, but critics blasted this telling because it had little basis in fact and only featured one major historical figure, Cornwallis. Everyone else was a composite of what Rodat called unsung heroes of the Revolutionary War. He said Benjamin Martin was based on four men who were pushed into fighting in the war after personal tragedy. Mel Gibson's hot streak continued with this film, and he had another hit that winter with the romantic comedy What Women Want. And of course we know about the great legacy of Heath Ledger, spanning all the way to his final film, The Dark Knight, which won him an Oscar. Jason Isaacs would go on for bigger roles, especially in the Harry Potter films, all the way from the second film to the last. I mentioned there was some Oscar buzz surrounding Jason Isaacs' performance as Tavington, but that nomination did not materialize. Because the film didn't get the kind of positive buzz that Sony hoped for, I was certain that the score would not get nominated for an Oscar, and we would see a year in which John Williams did not receive an Oscar nomination for any music. So imagine my surprise when John Williams was among the five original score nominees for the 73rd Academy Awards. This was Williams' 39th overall Oscar nomination, putting him in a tie for third all-time with production designer Cedric Gibbons. Competing against some heavy hitters in that category like Ennio Morricone and Hans Zimmer, it was not likely that Williams would grab Oscar number six for this score. But he attended the show anyway and was offered a great treat. Performing excerpts of the five score nominees were two of his previous collaborators, violinist Itzhak Perlman and cellist Yo-Yo Ma. Sitting there in the audience at the Shrine Auditorium, I have a feeling that Williams felt a twinge of inspiration for a collaboration that he would bring to fruition four years later. Tan Dun's marvelous score for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon took the Oscar that year. And though David Arnold has said that he didn't hold a grudge about being replaced by John Williams, it did affect his relationship with Roland Emmerich and Dean Dovland in that David Arnold never wrote another film score for them. And regarding the Oscar nomination, one has to wonder, what did Arnold think of Williams getting an Oscar nomination for this score? Probably the same thing that Lalo Schifrin, Jerry Goldsmith, and Bruce Broughton thought after Williams earned Oscar nominations for the scores he wrote as replacements for them. The Patriot was the last time Williams would step in as replacement composer in his career, working as the first choice composer with the Harry Potter series, Steven Spielberg films, and the Star Wars prequels for the next seven years. And I suppose Memoirs of a Geisha should have an asterisk next to it in this regard. And equally astonishing, 
throughout his entire career, which pretty much spanned 41 years up to this point, John Williams' scores were never rejected. So while the Patriot was making a small profit at the box office in 2000, Williams was moving on to conducting almost an entire summer of concerts in Boston. On June 8, 2000, Williams premiered a new concerto called Tree Song, a 20-minute piece that features the Boston Symphony Orchestra and Gil Shaman as the violin soloist. Unlike its previous work, The Five Sacred Trees, there is no known text that inspired Williams to compose this piece, but many reviews and articles about the composition suggest that Williams' muse seemed to be an ancient tree, which he gave life through his music. The first movement is called Dr. Hugh and the Meta Sequoia, and the violin works through various tonalities through the six-minute piece. Tree Song was released on CD in 2001, and it is one of the best CD presentations featuring John Williams' music. I got a copy as a birthday present many years ago, and I loved the CD booklet and the cover art more than the music. At first. Sometimes I play the concerto, and I can feel the whisper of the trees through Gil Shaman's violin. So a busy 2000 would end with the beginning of work on Spielberg's story of a robot who wanted to be a real boy. Every Spielberg collaboration brings a certain degree of excitement to any John Williams fan, 
and the announcement of AI, artificial intelligence, was no different. I'm excited to relive this beautiful score on the next episode, and I hope you'll join me for it. Until then, always, please, please, please send me an email to jeffswimmataol.com just to talk about John Williams, a particular episode of the show, or just the show in general. I always love reading your emails, and I try to answer them as quickly as I can. And also follow me on Twitter at jeffswim, and please, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks as always for joining me today. Until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>